0: Uh, we chose Acts very strategically. We started Acts the first Sunday uh, that we were in this space. Uh, and the reason is, is the, uh, that the book of Acts really tells us um, how does the kingdom of God come uh, when the king, Jesus, ha- has seemingly departed? Just because Jesus has departed, does that mean the kingdom's departed too? Uh, what does it look like uh, for Jesus to be on the move now that he's ascended Well, that's what the book of Acts uh, seeks to answer. Uh, It tells us um, that really the kingdom of God comes through his people by the power of his spirit. It comes through the witness of his people and by the power of his Holy Spirit. We'll say that again and again and again so that you'll know what does it look like for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Well, that's what it is. Through the witness of his people, by the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, that we are not left in the dark about who we are, who you are, and what our world is like. Uh, but rather, you have been very clear with us through your word. Uh, you have shine, You have shown your light on our hearts, on the world, and on your character. And so, Lord, I pray that we would glean from that tonight. Uh, Lord, that these might not uh, just be words that are truth that are kind of external to us, but Lord, I pray that you would internalize these words, apply these words in specific ways uh, to who we are as individuals. Oh, Lord, make us new because you have met us here through your word and by the power of your spirit. Praise in your name. Amen. Uh, tonight, I want to tell you a story about Audrey. Uh, Audrey is our middle child. Uh, she's six. Uh, she's the one who's most likely to be running. Uh, of my three children, uh, she doesn't really walk all that often. She just runs. Uh, she doesn't talk very often. She just screams. Um, that's Audrey. She also asked a ton of questions, tons of questions. Uh, we were in the van. This was this summer, and she points at that metal thing that's close to the sidewalk, about every you know dozen houses or so. We call them fire hydrants, and she said, "Daddy, what is that?" I said, "Well, that's a fire hydrant." And she said, "Well, what's what are they for?" I said, "Well," That's what, uh, that's what the firemen, that's what they, they put the hose into uh, to put out a fire that would, might be close to here. You know The hose that's on their truck, that's what they unravel to do. And she said, well, isn't there water on the truck? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know if there's water on the truck. If there is water on the truck, there's not that much. And she said, well, where's all the water come from? And I said, well, it all runs underground. The water that they get from those fire hydrants is the same water uh, that you use for your bath. Same water that we use to wash our clothes, same water that we use uh, to, for our sinks, and she said, "Oh!" So no matter how big the fire is, there's an endless source of water. And I said, "Exactly." It clicked for her. and that little instance of my interaction with Audrey reminded me a ton of this passage. It really got me thinking. Because the Holy Spirit ends up being the unlimited supply of power that we need to follow Jesus. In fact, the Christian life is utterly impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit. It is as impossible to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit as it is for a fire hydrant to be of any assistance to put out a fire without a water source. It's just a decoration and not a very pretty one. And neither are you without the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus said in John 15, "...without me you can do nothing." The disciples finally are now convinced of what Jesus told them. They know they can't do anything, and that's why they obeyed Jesus' command in Acts chapter 1 to wait there in Jerusalem for the power of the Holy Spirit to fall down on them. They knew that if the kingdom was going to come through the Holy Spirit, that they needed to tap into that power that the Holy Spirit brought. But if the Holy Spirit brings this power, what's this power going to do? When the kingdom of God comes, what's it going to look like? Well, I think that's what our passage tells us today. So let's read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting Saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we e- hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia. All right, so here's the picture. Remember the picture last week. There are 120 disciples. 12 of those 120 are the apostles. You've got Mary and some of Jesus' brothers are there too. Then you've got a whole bunch of unnamed male and female disciples. That's who's in this upper room, this 120. And they're there praying, remember? They're there waiting for the Holy Spirit to come down upon them. And for 10 days, this was their posture. And finally, the Holy Spirit comes down on them. And we see what the Holy Spirit does in them in verses 1 to 4. And then we see what the Spirit does through them in verses 5 to 13. So we've got the in-working, versus the first four verses, and the out-working is the second chunk of our passage. So what we see in this first four passage is that they experience the coming of the Holy Spirit with their senses. You see that? A couple weird things going on here. Because they felt wind on their skin... They heard that wind with their ears, and then they saw fire, tongues of fire, come down on each one of them. It sounds weird to us because we're 21st century Westerners. This sounds like a trick, some kind of maybe even exaggeration on part of Luke. It sounds like something that you might have on Halloween. This might just be some kind of hype fest. I don't know. But to Luke's original audience, this scene makes a, ri- makes a lot of sense based on what they knew about the Old Testament. See, the word wind, the word wind in Hebrew can also be translated spirit or breath. Same word, ruha. Not like the Marines, but ruha is a Hebrew word. And it means spirit. It means breath. And it means wind. And you know why, don't you? It's because they are real things that you can't see. Jesus uses it as a metaphor in chapter three of John. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. He uses wind and spirit in the same place. Then in a, a prophecy, Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel's in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 37, you have this valley of dry bones. You've got a, just a bunch of bones laying in a valley. And all of a sudden, these bones raise up. Flesh and muscle are put on them, and they begin to walk. In this vision that Ezekiel has, what makes them walk? What makes them come alive? It's God's breath. And so when they hear, when, 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 when Luke's audience read this passage, those first four verses of chapter 2, they have those images in their heads, the things that Jesus said about the wind and about the Spirit. They've got this image from Ezekiel chapter 37 of what the wind was like, but we get stuck on. What what, what was that like physically? Well, that that, that has some importance, but this is what they knew about God. And then you have this fire metaphor. I mean, this is, this will really freak you out. It sounds uh, like a heavy metal concert mixed with some really hard drugs, doesn't it? It sounds like they're having a hallucination as these tongues of fire come down on each person. I don't know what this looks like. I really don't. But what I do know is what John the Baptist said. John the Baptist in the Gospels, he says uh, that when the Messiah comes, he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I do know that in the Old Testament, throughout the whole Old Testament, fire is associated with the presence of the Lord, especially in the life of Moses. Remember, uh, Remember when God calls Moses, where's he at? A burning bush that's on fire. When Moses receives the law in Exodus chapter 19... What's going on there when he's receiving the law? Well, he's on Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai is on fire. When, when, when Moses is leading uh, the people of God, the Israelites, from Egypt to the promised land, what leads them at night? God with fire. So when we see this metaphor, when we see this word fire, when we see this word wind, we should be thinking, oh, this is what God's always been up to. And the physical phenomena do have an importance, but the inner experience of these 120 people, this is what should be noted by us. Look at verse 4. What's their inner experience? They're filled with the Holy Spirit. So although the wind and the fire, they have importance... Even though the speaking a language that they'd previously never known, they had no mastery over this language that we're going to look at in just a minute. These are really, really abnormal, aren't they? But what's not abnormal is being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is about new life. It's about joy. It's about worship. It's about boldness. It's about freedom. That's what the filling of the Spirit is about. And this is what God is still at work in doing. He's still at work to bring about life and joy and worship and freedom for his people. So this experience, this experience that they had here in, in chapter 2 of Acts is unrepeatable. But what is repeatable is being filled with the spirits. That is. See, we're like leaky buckets. As soon as we have receive a filling of the Holy Spirit... It just leaks right out because we're broken sinners. And when it leaks out, it doesn't mean that we're not Christians. It doesn't mean that we've lost the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. It doesn't mean that we've lost our standing as sons and daughters of God. But what it does mean is that we have lost power. We have lost joy. We have lost freedom. And we have lost boldness. So how do you get it back? Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says... uh, Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. We read Jesus saying something like that. We say, oh, all right. So if I'm hungry, if I'm thirsty for him, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, thirsty for righteousness. He'll come, he'll fill me and then I won't lose it anymore. No, 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 you'll lose it instantly. What Jesus is trying to teach us right here is that those who are perpetually hungry are the ones who are perpetually filled. And what that means is it makes a Christian life about admitting that we need the warmth of the fire of the Spirit. It makes a Christian life is about admitting that our sails are down and that we need the wind and the energy of the Spirit to blow on us if we're going to go anywhere. It's about constantly holding up our cup to God and asking Him to fill it and to warm it. This is the work that the Spirit wants to do in you, brother and sister. All that weird stuff. Don't, don't, don't get caught up on that stuff. It's, it's important. The important part for us is their inner experience. They're filling with the Holy Spirit. That is what God wants to do in you. But it didn't stop there for the disciples. It kept going. The, the Spirit had an outworking in verses 5 to 13. Look what happens here. Remember, Jesus says, uh, when the Spirit comes on you, you're going to be a witness in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. you got to wait for the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit comes comes down. They don't sit in there and have a party endlessly and just say, we just want to soak this experience up for days and days and days. We've been waiting for 10 days, praying for 10 days for the Holy Spirit to come. Now let's just enjoy the Holy Spirit for the next 10 days. That's not what happened. The Holy Spirit came. Where'd they go? Out into the street. Instantly went out into the street. And when they went out into the street, what Jesus is doing is that he's fulfilling his promise. Remember, he says, you will be a witness in Jerusalem, and that's where they are. And when they go out into the street, when all this happened, is called Pentecost. Well, Pentecost isn't just something that happened in Acts chapter 2. It's actually a feast that God commanded the Israelites to have in the law. And so the Jews were in a habit of uh, celebrating this feast, and, the, and, and really Pentecost was, really, it was all about celebrating God's goodness to them. This happened at harvest time. Their goodness to them and providing for them physically, Pentecost was also about celebrating the old covenant that God had made with Moses, that they were indeed God's people. So when they got to Jerusalem, it was a party. And by the time that we get to the first century, the Jews had dispersed; they were all over the known part of the world at that time. That's why you've got all those, uh, all the, all those. Um, places in verses uh, 9 and 10 and 11 of where they'd come from. It was kind of like what we hear uh, of of Islam. They go back to Mecca. It's it's every uh, Muslim's desire to go back to Mecca at some point. Well, it was every Jew's desire at some point in their life, probably not every Jew every year, but at some point in their life, they would come back to Jerusalem for Pentecost. So you had people there from Iran, from Iraq, from Northern Africa, from Turkey, from Italy, everywhere. And when they're up there, there's 120 people, they go out to the street with a whole bunch of people who don't look like them, that they can't even communicate with, they're given a miracle. And the miracle is that these 120 people are now able to speak a language that they didn't know before. So all of a sudden, you had these backwoods Jews from Galilee. They were looked down on as unsophisticated people, these Jews from Galilee. And they've got this accent. And they start speaking languages that they don't know. It would be like some of you, probably like me if I'm honest. If I started speaking Russian, I'd have a little bit of a twang about it, wouldn't you? It would be like uh, speaking Arabic with no R's because you were from Boston. You're a dead giveaway. So this strange speech, this miracle that happens at the coming of the Holy Spirit, this is what Luke gives his time to. Eight verses. He barely mentions wind. He barely mentions fire. But this strange speech is of great importance to him. He goes to great lengths to explain exactly what's going on here. Why does he do that? Why is the, this the one of the three that he's most concerned with? Well, it's because it's been God's plan all along to have a unified people who give witness to the whole world about the power of the Spirit. Nothing could demonstrate more clearly the coming of the Spirit than these disciples spontaneously declaring the mighty acts of God to a multinational, a multiracial, and a multilingual group of people. What this demonstrates is is a new unity that's transcended all racial lines, all national lines, all linguistic barriers have been overcome. It's a glimpse of heaven. There's no divisions among this new humanity All of the divisions that happened because of Genesis 11 that were the judgment of God are now being undone in Acts chapter 2 by the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's what we're going to see in the book of Acts. You're going to keep seeing this theme of the church becoming this united society where gender, ethnicity, race, language, socioeconomic class, they're all overcome because God's family is united by something so much greater than that. It's united by his spirit. Now, those who have been around the church, we, we think about the book of Acts, we think about it as it's the, it's the um, account of the growth of the church in a numeric sense. And it very much is that, but it's more than that. Acts also details the unification of the church. The unification of the church across all human lines. And now it serves as a model. It serves as a model for us on how we, too, are approach these issues, both in our church and in our neighborhood. So, in our church, do we desire numeric growth? Yes, but we also long to see reconciliation happen. We long to see reconciliation happen across all types of people. And this kind of reconciliation—it's really difficult, if not impossible without the work of the Spirit. John 13, verse 35 says this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let me say it again. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I think unbelievers, they, they, they can spot this. Real love is so unusual, but real love across diverse lines is even more unusual. And I think this is part of the explanation for the growth of the early church. And my hope, it's part of the story of how our church grows too. So we see this outward working of the Spirit. It leads to the unity of God's people, but it also leads to the witness of God's people. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 tells us the content of their witness. So when, he, when they start speaking languages that they had never spoken before, what are they talking about? They're talking about the mighty acts of God. Do you see it there? This is an interesting term to use for essentially what is evangelism. The mighty acts of God. See, when we usually think about witnessing, we think about apologetics, don't we? Asking, answering big questions that, that that, that unbelieving world asks. You know, how how can you trust the Bible? How could a good God allow suffering? How are miracles plausible? That's what we think about. We think about witnessing being like that. Maybe you think about witnessing as a program, as something that's kind of door-to-door in its nature. But look what we see here. We see them declaring the mighty acts of God. Now, a program and apologetics, they're not bad. In fact, they're necessary. But I think what both of these forms of witnessing can very likely leave out is the praise of God. See, this speaking in a different language, it's unique to Acts 2. Probably not going to happen for you, friend. Hate to bust your bubble. But what can happen to you and me is that we can become witnesses to the risen Jesus. What I need and what you need is to give witness to the work of Jesus in our lives in a way that goes beyond rationality to praise. To praise. I had a, a friend, an old friend of mine who lives out of town, I'm not, you know, sometimes I tell stories and leave the names out and it's usually one of you. Uh, I'm not doing that this week. This guy, you'll never know. You'll never know this guy more than likely. This guy, uh, old, really old friend of mine and um, lives out of town. And he and his wife went through a super, super rough patch. This has been about 10 years ago. He, he made some big time mistakes in his marriage, in his life. Big ones. His wife calls me and a couple other friends. When it initially blew up, we went. We were around for it for those really tough days, and we saw some bad stuff. When it all kind of blew over, that initial kind of the blow up happened, I wasn't sure they were going to make it. But after a really long time, after this long period of healing, they were able to reconcile, and they stayed married. It really is a miracle. And maybe three or four years after that, this has been now five or six years ago, we were just talking about marriage in general. <clears throat> and he said this to me. He said, Only, I'll never forget it. He said, Only a God who is alive could have saved my marriage. He said again, Only a God who is alive could save my marriage. Now, I'm sitting there. I'm in full-time ministry at this point. Uh, I'm not an unbeliever at this point. And what he just did to me was he witnessed to me. He gave witness to the risen Christ. And that's what the watching world needs from us, friends. It doesn't take very long to go from a statement like, Only a God who is alive can save my marriage. It doesn't take long to go from there to Jesus lived, he died, he raised again. He ascended into heaven and he sent his spirit who changed me and that's why I'm sitting here with you. See, when you and I, when we become keenly aware of how the grace of the gospel is making us new, we realize real clearly that we didn't bring that change about. See, when the real Jesus meets the real you and brings about real transformation, it will lead to real praise in front of unbelievers, and it will bring the kind of witnessing that's humble, it's persuasive, and it's winsome. Now, this might be a new way of thinking about witnessing for you. I think it's, it's unfamiliar territory for many of us because uh, we view witness as something that we do as a church, which we do do as a church. But the primary way that we, in some of our thinking, the primary way that we do that is by what happens in here for about 75 minutes. We want to have a really appealing place for unbelievers to come. You need killer coffee. You need uh, hit music. We're one for two at this point. Uh, And we need a pastor with a beard and skinny jeans. You're one for three. (laughs) This is a really faulty way of you avoidancing. Because what that does is it takes you, the normal church member, out of the equation. Here's what one writer said. said this, social networks are the basic mechanism through which conversion takes place. Most conversions are not produced by professional missionaries conveying a new message, but by rank and file members who share their faith with their friends and their relatives. That's not a pastor saying that. That's a sociologist at Yale. So do you see the difference between viewing witnessing as a program or as an event and witnessing as a set of relationships? See, what we all need We all need four or five people. Identify four or five people that we pray for, that we spend time with, and that we look to witness to. We look to witness to the resurrected Jesus on what he has done in our lives and what he has done in the world. This doesn't take a lot of training. It certainly doesn't take a seminary degree. But what it does take is perseverance. It does take faithfulness. And if you begin to witness in the way, in this way, What can you expect? You begin to praise God in front of unbelievers. What's going to happen? Well, look at verse 12. In verse 12, it says, all were amazed and perplexed. Now, amazed, we usually think amazed like, oh, wow, that was awesome. Amazed here uh, means uh, something very similar to perplexed. They were confused and perplexed. And they said to one another, what does this mean? Now, I I bet you, you know, they've got these uh, people who, now they're speaking a language that they don't know with a Galilean accent. I'm pretty sure, based on this verse, that they cocked their heads, looked at these 120 people, and were like, huh? And friends, that's what you hope happens with you. You hope that your life is so different, that people cock their head, look at your life, and go, huh? That's what you're hoping for. Because what you might get is verse 13. People might mock you. They might say that you're filled with new wine. Now they're finished, sure you're calling them drunk, you know. But what's behind that is they're trying to find a natural explanation to this miracle. Because if, 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 they, if they acknowledge it to be a miracle, then they're going to have to say, that they weren't in control, and that they're going to to submit to whoever made this miracle happen. So don't be surprised if those with whom you're loving, that you're praying for, that you're witnessing to, that they try to explain your behavior in natural ways too. They might begin to say, oh, that's their personality. There's no way that's true. The person I see out front, there's no way behind closed doors that's what they're like all the time. Be ready for people to explain you naturally by saying, oh, if I had those, if I had a, a love, if I grew up in a loving environment, if I had that kind of education, I would be like that too. So how can you avoid that? How do you curb verse 13 and just get verse 12? You can't. This kind of life with Jesus, being a witness to Jesus, it's an adventure. There's a lot of highs, a lot of lows, a lot of unexpected. But friends, this is what you're made for. You're made to be a witness to the resurrected Jesus by the power of his spirit so the kingdom of God can move to the ends of the earth. Four or five people at a time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we do know this was an unrepeatable event, but what we do know is that You are still alive and active. You still do fill people with your spirit. You still do unify your people. You still do give us power to witness. Oh, Lord, do this in our church, in our community, in our lives as individuals. We pray this in your name. Amen.